Now, we want to keep our study going on the attributes of God, and so if you will take your Bibles, please, today, and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I think there are some Bibles there in the hymnal racks in front of you, or you can pick it up on your iPhone. If you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to stick with this passage. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it's right in that section. And uh, this is a book that recounts the historical record of, of uh, Israel's uh, captivity and then their deliverance. And uh, it's just a marvelous passage that helps us to understand what we want to talk about this morning. And that is the patience of God. God is a patient God among many other things. And as to the very core of his being, uh, he is patient with us. And all of us, I think, probably struggle with patience more than anything else. It's not something that comes easy to us. Uh, we are a generation that's on a, the go. We wanna, we're always in a hurry. How many of you are in a hurry this morning? Okay, let, uh, rest of you aren't being truthful are you uh, we're hurry we're always in a hurry we're always wanting to go someplace and uh, interesting thing about God is that he's never in a hurry ever stop and think about that uh, God never gets over anxious when things don't fall his way he is a very patient God and we're going to learn about that here this morning Nehemiah chapter 9 and we're just going to read a couple of verses Verses, <clears throat> last part of verse 17 and then through verse 18. Will you please stand in honor of the word of God? Words are up on the screen. <clears throat> but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Seems like the people of Israel, for one reason or another, in spite of all the, the mercy and patience of God, they continued to be very arrogant. And they trampled on his mercy and on his patience. And uh, the new generation in this particular chapter is confessing the sins of those that died off in the wilderness, never saw the promised land because they refused to believe God. And even after they've taken possession of the land during the period of the judges, why they still haven't figured it out yet. And they become arrogant toward a God who is very patient and kind. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds to this truth today. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you today with thanksgiving. We rejoice in these young men and women that have taken this very important step of obedience to you, outwardly identifying with you, declaring to all that they are going to follow you the rest of their lives and they're going to live for you through the power of the Holy Spirit who is resident within them. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage all of us, if we haven't taken that step, to be thinking about that. Uh, Lord, you uh, submitted to John's baptism to identify with us uh, in our humanity, and we are called to identify with you 
as you have changed our lives from the inside out. Now, Lord, speak to our hearts, open our minds to the truth of this passage, and we'll praise you forever in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our hurry-up, get-out-of-my-way world, patience is oftentimes lost in the shuffle. Uh, We are people that are perpetually in a hurry. Uh, We hate to wait, whether it's in a grocery line or whether we're at a traffic stop. We want to get going. We want to move. We are people of action. And anytime we have to slow down and wait for someone or some other situation to open up for us, we get very impatient. Uh, I remember when we moved out to California back some 35, 40 years ago, back in the 80s. And uh, I'll never forget my first introduction to the Ventura Freeway. Uh, That's the famous 101. In those days, there were only four lanes on each side. Today, there are about eight lanes on each side. But back then, there were four lanes on each side. And coming from the Midwest, I wasn't prepared for what I was about to experience. Uh, I was driving into L.A., and I was in the fast lane closest to the median, uh, in the far lane to the left, and uh, trying to stay out of trouble. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear the roar, I mean a tremendous roar of an engine, and zoom, in between my car and a car on my right is a motorcyclist. Whoom, he goes. Whoom, whoom. I mean, about five or six of them. And I mean, there's very little room in between those cars. But they were going full speed. And I just, man, I thought that was an accident ready to happen. Didn't take me long to figure out when I lived in California, there are two kinds of drivers, the quick and the dead. And uh, I mean, they are just constantly, constantly in motion. It's amazing. Uh, When I lived in New Haven, Indiana, a little town outside of Fort Wayne, there was a switch engine operator that operated right through the middle of town. And I kid you not, he knew exactly when I needed to get across the traffic. I would be on my way for an appointment or some kind of an important meeting, and as soon as I would approach the railroad, the arms would come down, and that crazy switch operator was going back and forth. There were times I tried to outsmart him, and I would turn around and go to the next exit, turn, and as soon as I turned, the arm went down again. So, I mean, he had me any which way I turned. Uh, Those are frustrating moments for all of us, especially for this preacher, because I was always late, and then I would have to explain myself because of what what happened on my way to that appointment or that situation. Uh, We are people that are fairly impatient And because patience gets lost in the shuffle, I believe today we're a generation of opioid addiction, cannabis outlets, and stress clinics. Many seem to be bent on the philosophy expressed in a small wooden plaque 
that I saw in an office some time ago. I'm planning on having a nervous breakdown. I've earned it. I deserve it. I've worked hard for it. And nobody's going to keep me from having it, unquote. Impatience. All of us experience it. And yet the God we serve, the God that knows us so well, is a God who dwells within us <clears throat> because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this God who sent Jesus into the world is a God who is patient, he's long-suffering, he's compassionate, and kind. God doesn't run over people. He doesn't write people off. He doesn't teeter back and forth on his heels when things don't go his way. He doesn't twiddle his thumbs nervously because of some irritation that has uh, come his way. Our God's never bothered by a delay. He's never bothered by something that doesn't go the way he had planned for it. Now I'm reminded of the great preacher Phillips Brooks who on one occasion, he was nervously pacing back and forth in his office, and those all around him, they seemed to think that this was kind of out of character for this great man of God. And so someone dared to ask him a question, Dr. Brooks, well, what's the problem? And Brooks's remark was, well, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. And, you know, that's something that all of us, if we're honest, we... We drive ourselves, we, we live by the clock, and let me tell you, if things don't turn out the way we would like to, uh, we get ourselves all into a, 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 some, some craziness, let's put it that way. The God we serve is patient and kind. Now, what is this commodity that we call patience? What is it? Well, let me give you some definitions. Patience is waiting without worrying. Patience is accepting a difficult self-situation without giving God a deadline to remove it. Patience is that process period in our lives between where we are now and where we would like to be. Patience is the time we are willing to wait for God to respond to us in the way he has promised. Patience is putting up with annoyances and allowing God to turn them into advantages. Patience is realizing that when God closes a door, he opens a window of opportunity. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, we have insight into the historical record of the patience of God. You'll remember that these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, were written to those who were in captivity and now are being exiled because of their sin, their rebellion against God. The temple has been forsaken. The walls around Jerusalem have been in, in, in shambles. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And when he learns the ruin of the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and he learns of what's happened to the temple, uh, he is deeply touched. And he asks for a leave of absence, and he goes to the city 
of Jerusalem. And after viewing the shambles of the city, the poor condition of the wall, he <clears throat> comes back and seeks to arouse the people to restore the temple and to also rebuild the wall. And during this particular time, Nehemiah institutes a number of religious reforms that were prompted by the Holy Spirit and are recorded by Ezra the scribe. And in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have recorded how God is at work when people actually get their eyes back on God and off of the situation in which they're in. Now it's interesting that here in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Bible says that the people heard a reading of the word of God. Notice chapter 9 and verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For, for a quarter of the day they just listened to the word of God that had not been read for many, many days. And then they spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. In other words, what we need to understand here is that the word of God brings conviction and it also leads to confession. The more we are taken up with the word of God, uh, the more tender we will be toward him in things that have occurred in our lives that have caused us to rebel and turn away from him. We surrender to him because the word of God brings conviction to our hearts. And so Nehemiah in this chapter not only confesses the sins of the, his generation, but also the sins of his forefathers who had not walked in the ways of the Lord. And therefore they've been the recipients of his judgment. But throughout this passage, what comes through over and over and over again is how patient God has been, not only with the former generation and the generation that followed him, but even the current generation. From generation to generation to generation, we see the patience of God. And so here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 5, uh, you will notice that <clears throat> they called with loud voices to the Lord, their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hoda, Shebaniah, and Pethunia said, Stand up and praise the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. They, the, the spiritual leaders hear the word of God, and they stand up and they say, Now let us praise the name of the Lord our God. And in the process of praising the name of the Lord their God, they focus on God's patience. Now, what is the patience of God? Give me give you three uh, examples of his patience. First of all, God's patience is seen in his forgiveness that leads to reward. And you see this in verse 7 through verse 25. This confessing generation recalls that the roots go all the way back to Abraham, uh, to who was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees. 
And because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, God makes a covenant with him and with his seed that the whole world is going to be blessed. Furthermore, his offspring were going to be as many as the sands of the sea. And you'll note here in verse 8 that God keeps his promise to Abraham. Notice, because he is a righteous God. And then beginning at verse 9 through 16, Nehemiah observes that the people recall all the mighty acts that God did for them in delivering them from their affliction in Egypt. Remember the people of God were were being beaten by the Egyptians and through a series of events God uh, delivers them from their afflictors. He miraculously parts the Red Sea and brings them into the land of promise. Uh, He not only uh, leads them uh, in their flight from Egypt, but he reveals to them in the process his word to them. In verse 19, notice, he reminds the people that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Verse 13, you came down from Mount Sinai, You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them righteous laws and regulations that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. So they recall what God did for his people. I mean, he delivers them. He delivers them from bondage. He opens up the Red Sea. He gives them his word so they have a guide for living. And he empowers the people, notice, to possess the land. Verse 15, you told them to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. In other words, God does all this on behalf of his people, and yet the people do not understand the great patience of God in the process. They didn't have to fight for the land. The land was theirs. It was a gift that God had promised to them some 40 years previously. But how do the people respond to his gracious deliverance from Egypt? Does their supernatural deliverance cause them to love God and to trust him more? Absolutely not. Their deliverance from Egypt caused them to want to obey God from their hearts and do the things God wants them to do? No. Look at verses 16 and 17. How the people respond to everything that God did for them. Verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. Notice, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. (coughs) They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. I mean, God does all these things for his people. You would think they'd be gracious. You would think they would respond in obedience and love and worship. But instead, they become stiff-necked. They don't listen to God's voice. They do their own thing. And they basically push God aside. Notice what he says. He says, they refused to listen. They failed to remember. They became stiff-necked and they wanted to go back to Egypt. In fact, there were those that said, well, we don't want to perish in, the, in the, uh, the desert. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. And let's be honest. 
How would most of us respond in that kind of a situation? You've done everything you can to help somebody. You've invested your life. I mean, God invests his life and his people. He does everything for them to bring them freedom from their oppressors. He delivers them miraculously. He does everything for them. How do you feel when you've done everything for someone and yet they do their own thing? They go their own way. We've poured our hearts into some individuals. We care about them. But how do most of us respond when that happens? Well, I've had it with you. You know, I gave you a chance, but you blew it. You've exhausted my patience. Don't come running back to me. I've done everything for you. Now, you just, you've made your bed, now you have to lay in it. That's how many of us respond, but not God. God is patient and kind. Look again at Nehemiah 17 to 19 as Nehemiah reminds the people of God's response to their stubbornness. He says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. When they deserve nothing but being distanced from you, you you kept on looking after them. You provided for them. You took care of them. He doesn't turn his back on his people. And though the Israelites experience a 40-year delay in the wilderness and do not enter enter the land of promise, the generation dies out there in the wilderness, the generation that follows them does because God is patient with them. Notice verse 24, it says that their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them among their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. In other words, God kept his promise despite the rebellion of that previous generation who trifled with the patience and the mercy of God. Have you ever really stopped and thought for a moment And contemplated when the scriptures affirm that God is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Have you ever really stopped to think what that really means? That means God is patient. He does not write us off. He does not act impulsively against us. And how unlike God we are in our relationships with others. When someone hurts us or takes our friendship for granted, we get miffed. We hold grudges that sap us of our spiritual energy. We seek to get back at a person. We want vindication. We want to build our case We keep a scorecard of the wrongs done to us, but not God. God does not keep that kind of a scorecard. He doesn't work that way. What does it mean? That doesn't mean, however, that we are to do whatever we can and still get by with it. 
I believe we dare not abuse the patience of God. Now, as I've been thinking about this this past week, there are at least four ways I think we can abuse the patience of God. Number one, we abuse God's patience when we assume that his patience is a sign of weakness in his character. The fact that God is patient with us does not mean that he is weak and has difficulty knowing how to deal with us. In fact, the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 10 and verse 11. And he describes the wicked who abuse God's patience and say to themselves, God has forgotten. He covers his face and he never sees. That's how the wicked act. God doesn't see any of this. I can do whatever I want to. He doesn't see. He's weak. But in Psalm 10 and verse 14, the psalmist reaches a clearer conclusion. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. God is no fool. He is not weak. And when he exercises patience for us, it does not mean that he has a flaw in his character. He simply cares for us more than we ever could ever imagine. Number two, we abuse God's patience when we continue on sinning when God has extended mercy toward us. In Isaiah 57 and verse 11, God rebukes those who lie to him and give no thought to him saying, is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? Sometimes God doesn't respond right away. And people think they can get by with just ignoring God and doing things on their own. They can continue living in sin and arrogance against God. God's extending mercy. Do you realize all of us are here today because of the mercy of God? Aren't you thankful for God's mercy and his patience with us? Number three, we abuse God's patience when we repeat our sinning ways after he lessens our affliction. Affliction always arrests our attention, doesn't it? But as soon as the affliction is gone, oftentimes we go back to our old ways of living. That was the problem with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, chapter 9. Remember, he refused to let the people go and a plague would come and his people would suffer. And then he would come and he, he would say, oh, we're, we're so sorry. And as soon as the plague was lifted, why? He was at it again. You see, in times of affliction, when God takes us through affliction, that is a time when we need to submit to him fully and obey him completely. But that wasn't the case with Pharaoh. As soon as those plagues were lifted, he was back at it again, afflicting the people with even more pain, refusing to let them go. In fact, through that whole process, Pharaoh's heart grows cold toward God. And number four, we abuse God's patience when we engage in more evil and wickedness simply because judgment is not immediate. 
The preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11 puts it this way, when the sentence for a crime is not carried out quickly, the hearts of people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Verse 12 and 13, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, he seemingly gets by with it, in other words, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like the shadow. Sometimes we look at the person that <clears throat> is wicked, everything seems to be going his way. And you wonder why the righteous people, <clears throat> their lives many times are cut short. I have many friends been living for God, outstanding men and women of God. Their lives have been cut short through sickness, through an accident, through death. I don't understand all those things. Seems like the wicked get by with it, but promise here is they're not going to get by with it. God's going to settle the score one day. So as the people in Nehemiah's generation confessed the sins of the previous generation, they are made aware of the patience of God. And so this new generation at this point is desirous of not abusing the patience of God, but experiencing the forgiveness that comes because the reward is never far behind. They are now in the land that God has promised. Number two, God's patience is his forbearance that leads to repentance. And you see this in verses 26 through 31. In this paragraph of the Great Confession, the people recall the period of the judges. You'll remember that after they get into the land of promise, <clears throat> uh, again, Israel sins. They, they experience all the blessing of God, but then they, they, they go back. And in the book of Judges, the key thought is every man did what was right in his own eyes. What did the people in the book of Judges do? Did they learn from the previous historical perspective? No, they didn't. Look at verse 25. That next generation, they ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your goodness. Here they're now in the promised land and they experience all kinds of blessing. They revel in your goodness, but that generation still doesn't get it. Look at verse 26. But, they repeat the mistakes of the past, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you and put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets and those who admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. Blasphemies. God's people turn on the one who is responsible for their well-being and safekeeping. They disregard the law. They silence the prophets that God sends to them. And in verse 29, notice they step up their rebellion against God. Look at what the text says. But you warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and did just exactly what the previous generation, they refused to listen. Verse 30, notice, underline this in Sarshar Truce. For many years 
you were what? Patient with them. And by your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to neighboring peoples. And they'd be taken captive again, and then God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, to deliver them from the hands of their enemy. And for a period of time, they'd do everything right. But before long, they fell back. They fell back into bondage. They did their own thing. See, many of the problems we encounter in life are the result of our own disobedience and refusal to do things God's way. But God is so patient and forbearing with us that in mercy, listen to me, he bails us out when we least deserve it. You see, Israel never seems to learn. You take a look at these Old Testament passages and they never get it. They don't understand how merciful and patient God is. And that's what happens to many of us. We start out obeying God, we start out living for Him, and then all of a sudden we start doing things our own way. We become arrogant and stiff-necked. Notice verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they did evil. Yet, what does God do? He delivered them time after time after time. How many times has God delivered us? How many times has God interceded on our behalf? For many years, he was patient with them because he is gracious and merciful. You see, it is the patience of God that should lead us to repentance. And you have this thought repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you not show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You see, every time we hear the gospel and we don't respond to it, we are trifling with the patience of God. Every time we know the Holy Spirit is at work within us and we feel convicted and we decide to just kind of push those nudges of the Holy Spirit aside, we are trifling with the patience. It is the patience of God that leads us to the point where we recognize how much we need Him. He is so patient and kind and loving. And friends, the fact that God's patience is real should not only lead us to repentance, but should also lead us to right relationships. How desperately the body of Christ needs to learn to respond patiently with each other. You see, the rubber of Christianity meets the road in our relationships. It's not how much we know. God is not after knowledge. The problem with many of us is that we have so much knowledge. The problem is we haven't obeyed. What God is after more than anything else is obedience. 
So many times we pride ourselves on how much we know. How much have we obeyed is the key question. The best test of our Christianity is not when we're in some quiet place in our home or when we're cloistered away at a prayer retreat. The test of our Christianity is what happens to us when we have just gone through a coronavirus where we're shut up in our homes. We have to socially distance. The test of our Christianity is how we handle delays and setbacks and unjustified criticism and disappointment. Patience is not only God-like, it is a character trait that God wants to produce in us. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. It's something that characterizes God, and it's something that is to be evident in our lives as the people of God. And then lastly, God's patience is seen in his faithfulness that leads to renewal. You see this in the last part of this wonderful chapter, beginning at verse 32. As you come to the end of this confession, it becomes more personal. As you read those first 30-some verses, it's all they, 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 they. They did this, and they did that. And they became rebellious, and they turned away, and they took matters into their own hands. But now, beginning at verse 32, it's more personal. You have the pronouns we and our and us. And you'll notice verses 36 and 37, but we see... We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings who you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And so now the present generation... They've talked about these previous generations, how they rebelled against God and trifled with his patience. But now they acknowledge we too are in deep distress. Look at verse 38, underscored in chartreuse. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, our priests are affixing their seals to it. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, we see that the people of God in this current present generation now make a pledge of dedication to God that comes from a heart that understands how great God really is. And in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10, you'll notice... The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peace people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath. Notice, to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees 
of the Lord. They realized that the previous generations have failed. In fact, they admit that they themselves now are failing. But now they make a renewal. They recommit themselves to follow the word of God. And they make five specific commitments. We're just going to touch on them. First of all, in chapter 10, verse 29, they say, God, we're going to obey you. They make a promise of ready obedience to God's word. Number two, they make a commitment to refuse to intermarry with pagans. Most of Israel's problems happened when they intermarried with the nations around them that did not know God. They, they formed alliances, marriage alliances with people that were pagan and did not know God. In fact, the New Testament talks about this. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? See, it's so important in our marriage relationships that we marry those who know and love Jesus. You just stop and think about this. All the heartache that has happened when we just violate that one principle. I've seen it over and over again. God wants us to marry those who also know and love Jesus. And the people here... They made a commitment. They're no longer going to do this. This is what caused a lot of the problems with the Israelites. Then number three, they promised and made, <clears throat> they refused, they resisted to profane the Lord's day. In other words, they, they had just, they profaned what was set apart as holy. You take a look at what's happened in our culture today, Sunday has just become like any other day. I mean, we buy, we sell, we, we, do, we do the very same thing on Sunday that we all do during the week. There's no difference. We're just like the Israelites. But at this moment, verse 31, notice, it says, when the neighboring peoples bring their merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. In other words, they're going to honor the Lord. They're not going to profane the Lord's day. And then a fourth commitment that they would make a regular contribution of first fruits to the Lord. Notice verse 35. It says, We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. Instead of giving God our leftovers, instead of giving God what? We don't want, we're going to give him the best. We're going to give him the first fruits of our income and what we have earned. And then number five, notice verse 39. This just sums it all up. We will not neglect, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. So the people now... <clears throat> as they've looked back at history and seen how the previous generations have trifled with the patience of God, this new generation says, okay, Lord, we fall into that same trap. 
but now we're going to make these commitments. We're going to serve you wholeheartedly. We're going to give ourselves unreservedly to you. Now, friends, let me just conclude with these three statements. The patience of God is not only awesome. It is, I am so thankful that God's a patient God. (laughs) Where would any of us be without his patience? But we need to cultivate that character trait in our lives. Number one, we must not trifle with God's patience. Can God's patience be exhausted? Yes, it can. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, in those awful days just before God judged the earth with a flood, God said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. God, the sinfulness of man was at such an elevated state that uh, it was a global flood. But God also made a promise. And the promise was in a form of a rainbow. And every time you see a rainbow in the sky, that should remind you of the patience of God. He will never again destroy the earth with a flood. We must not trifle with his patience. We must be thankful. Every time you see a rainbow, God is patient with us. Number two. We must not let God's patience, we must not take his patience for granted. When God speaks to us, when God talks to us from his word, let's respond. Let's don't become like the Israelites, become stiff-necked and arrogant, refuse to listen to God. Whenever you feel the nudge of God to do what he's asking you to do, even though it may be hard, Let's do it. Let's not take his patience for granted. And then number three, let us develop the fruit of the Spirit in our relationships with each other. I will tell you, patience does not come easy, but it is God's prescription for us as his people. He wants us to be patient and loving and kind. And whenever we bristle at God, remember, he still loves us. He still cares about us. He always wants what's best for us. We need to be submissive to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you so much for your patience that is unending. We see that your children, many times we take your patience for granted. We live life on our terms. We become impatient. We become critical. We become judgmental of others. Lord, that's not the way you've treated us. Help us to represent you as you really are. Yes, you will judge sin, but you are always loving and kind. You never 
do anything to us that compromises your character. Your character is holy and pure and righteous. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and the God that we have embraced. Now let's stand together to receive the benediction. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning. And Maranatha, lo he comes. Have a great day in Jesus.